0: From News Talk 580-1059-KMJ, this is the Matty Report, Valley Views Edition. Now here's your host, Mark Kepler.
1: The 2018 midterms may see the biggest voter turnout in a generation. What are the propositions and races driving voters to the polls? This November, California voters will have their say on several ballot propositions and initiatives. What are the implications for California? We'll ask. John Myers with the LA Times. And Laurel Rosenhall with Cal Matters.
2: Additional funding for the MADI report made possible by a grant from The Wonderful Company, harvesting health and happiness around the world. As well as support from Era Energy LLC, Bonner Family Foundation, community medical centers, Harris Ranch Inn and Restaurant, Nossaman LLC, Sagasser Watkins and Whelan, and Valley Children's Hospital. From the California Channel at the State Capitol and the Maddie Institute, it's the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler.
1: Welcome, I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. Well, the November ballot's going to be asking Californians to weigh in on a number of public policy issues. We're fortunate to have two well respected observers of state politics to explain the what and the why. Uh, behind the November's propositions, we have Laurel Rosenhall, who uh, covers capital po- uh, California politics for Cal Matters, and John Myers, the Sacramento bureau chief with the LA Times. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so, Laurel, uh, sorry for mangling that there in the beginning. I apologize. Affordable housing, uh, big issue in California. Um, number of props on the state uh, ballot. Uh, for example, we've got Prop One, a four billion dollar bond uh, for affordable housing. We've got the Prop 2, the $2 billion initiative for permanent housing aimed at chronically, the chronically homeless and the mentally ill. Are either one of these a game changer?
3: Not a game changer, but a major infusion of, you know, one-time cash. So um, they would help a lot in terms of building new housing, but it's not going to The need is huge. I was just going to say, it's not going to take care of the entire need.
0: Yeah, what what do you think? Well, consider consider one of the numbers out of this, Mark. In a lot of years, the state roughly builds about 100,000 new homes. It needs to build double that number. And the bond measures that we're sitting here talking about, they're certainly helpful for veterans. They're helpful for uh, uh, lower income Californians. They don't help middle class Californians and they don't help, I think the systemic problems that you see in Southern California, in the Bay Area, it's, it's not enough. I mean, everybody's going to say something is better than nothing. The question is, what else could we do, should we be doing?
1: Yeah, kind of driving the bucket, I was looking at the numbers, and they're saying that the backlog by 2025, we need to build 1.8 million homes mm-hmm. to cover the backlog. And if you want to satisfy demand, lower prices, you got to add another 1.7 million. So we're talking, I'm not sure my math is right, or 3.5 million new homes by 2025. It's that's a lot of new homes. Well, and not only that, but
0: you you, know, you look at any given year, you just haven't done uh, what you need in the year, and then you look at what the candidates for governor, uh, like I'm reminded of numbers that were like 300000 500000 a year. That hasn't been uh,
1: done in any year in modern California history. You know, in 2012, John, Governor Brown nixed uh, these things called local redevelopment agencies, RDAs, and about a billion dollars of that money, he was trying to save because of the of budget constraints, of RDA funds was going to uh, affordable right. housing. Is Prop 1 and 2, are they an attempt to kind of get back to that? I
0: don't think so. Um, One, because they're limited. They're veterans, low-income Californians. Um, The money probably won't get distributed statewide in the way redevelopment agencies existed. And then keep in mind, too, redevelopment agencies went away in part because they had a lousy track record in a lot of places for actually building housing versus using money for other things. In some instances, only about a fifth of the money actually went to housing versus uh, development Well, there were some
1: anecdotes cities. that were just yeah. Yeah, really problematic. Um, what do you think? If, if we see these props fail, are we going to see another attempt to create a kind of an RDA 2.0?
3: I think you're going to see that either way. Mm-hmm. Um, Assemblyman David Chu has already. Um, said that he plans to bring it back, and he really, the only stumbling block for him has been Jerry Brown, who doesn't want to do it. So next year with a new governor, I absolutely expect that'll come back.
1: Yeah, I want to jump over to, to Prop 10, um, which is a, a law that repeals uh, restrictions on cities and counties from enacting rent control measures. Um, are the arguments that it's going to save or, or devastate uh, the housing market really overstated? What do you think, Laurel?
3: I think that there's a lot of hyper- hyperbole in all of these propositions mm-hmm. and that one, you know, included. Um, you know, it is uh, it's 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 a re- there's a lot of studies that show that the impacts of rent control are um, very hurtful on the you know, local housing markets. At the same time, there are um, persuasive arguments from people who are in cities without rent control, who are seeing their rents go up and up and up mm-hmm. and who are really begging for some kind of relief. What do you think, John?
0: I think the hardest part about Prop 10 uh, is that it is simply releasing um, the restrictions on rent control. It doesn't mandate rent control will happen. It doesn't change anything guaranteed in any community in California. And there are these economic push points about that people will no longer rent these places if they are limited on what they can make on it. Mm-hmm. But but I think to Laurel's point exactly, people say uh, lots of things in campaigns. Uh, this would be one step, but it's a small step and it's not a guaranteed yes. step. And lawmakers in Sacramento ultimately have to come up. with
1: a That's a really resolution. important point. It's local control issue uh, eventually if, if it does Let me ask you one last question, John. Uh, CEQA. uh, You know, the California Environmental Quality Act, a lot of people, certainly Republicans, point to that law as really hurting the ability to to build more housing. Um, You think there's going to be an attempt, regardless of what happens on these propositions, to amend CEQA?
0: Uh, It's it's been talked about a lot. Uh, Governor Brown, who of course will be leaving office shortly, has said there was never a CEQA exemption that he didn't like. Um, but doing it is is a, is a tricky thing, and the reason it hasn't been done, I think, in part is because uh, there are environmentalists who believe you don't throw all of this out. You don't uh, completely gut this law that um, actually makes people take a second look at the environmental impact of, of things. I think that CEQA is a ballot measure waiting to happen. The question is, is there money behind uh, construction groups, business groups to, to move it forward or not? I don't know, but it's gotta go to the ballot. There's but. a
1: prediction for, for 2020. <laughs> well, up next, uh, a water prop is on tap. Uh, that conversation in a moment, this is the Maddie Report. Welcome back, I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with Ro- Laurel Rosenhall with Cal Matters and John Myers with the LA Times. Water is one of those perennial California public policy issues. where We're at it again, Laurel, um, so Prop 3. The Water Supply and Quality Act of 2018 would authorize about $9 billion in bonds for a wide variety of uh, specifically detailed water projects. Um, Given that it follows Prop 1 and 2, are voters going to have bond fatigue when they hit Prop 3?
3: I would say it's possible, but not likely. Generally, the pattern has been that voters approve bonds and are are okay with borrowing money if they like the purpose. Um, On the other hand, you know, we did just have a water bond a few months ago on the June ballot. And so depending on how tuned in they are, you know, that may be a factor. What do you
0: think? Uh, I don't know. I think if there's ever a test to see if voters won't um, support a bond measure it could be prop three it could be simply because um, of the of the points that Laurel just stated uh, also to you look at the ballot analysis we're talking about something that will cost over time 17 billion dollars about eight billion in bonds about 17 billion to pay it all off with interest um, they were very smart, the backers of Prop 3, in getting a lot of buy in from a lot of groups uh, ag and environmentalists and conservation people. There is no formal opposition to Prop 3. But this, follows, so, this
1: follows other water bonds. Um, so, you know, we had a water bond in June, right? um, and we had one in 2014. Uh, the one in june was 4 billion dollars the one in 14 was 7.5 billion and
0: the proponent of prop 3 has even said that this is almost like where the 2014 measure that governor brown sp- uh, supported prop 1 left off that it's that kind of projects i think people will say that that uh, the water supply is important in california that the mechanics the the needs are are real Whether this is the right one remains to be seen, but voters
1: do not have problems with bonds, to to Laurel's point. They just say, hey, that's fine, let's do it. Let's fill the reservoir, which Laurel aims me to my next question, that is on water supply. It's in the title, the Water Supply and Quality Act of 2018, but only about $2 billion, less than a quarter of the money, actually goes to increasing the supply of water. Um, Despite that, Prop 3 has the backing of agribusiness. Why is ag accepting not even half, but really a quarter of a loaf?
3: Because $2 billion is $2 billion more than zero.
1: Okay. I mean, honestly,
3: I just think that, you know, in order to get something that was going to be politically viable, they needed that broad coalition that John described. You know, you need to have environmentalists on board. It can't be an ag-only deal. And so everyone kind of who's supporting it is getting some of the projects that they that they think are best for the state. And so does this mean
0: the water wars are solved? No, I don't think, no, of course <laughs> not. We wouldn't be that crazy to say that. But let's not forget, to your point about agribusiness, Mark, um, everybody uh, wins. If California has more water. And like, look at Prop 3. It has uh, water conservation, ways to, you know, to make sure that we're not wasting water, water, uh, you know, recycling issues. I mean, it, it, it. so my point is um, it doesn't change the system of water, but if there's more water in existing rules, if you're the agribusiness community, maybe you think that's a pretty good deal, that therefore, you know, it
1: helps you in the long run. Well, some of the, the opponents, John, are saying that this is really a pay to play uh, situation, that s- some special interests are receiving special funding guarantees. They specifically point to. The $750 million of the $1.2 billion to repair a canal is going to a specific canal, the 152-mile Kern-Friant uh, Canal in the Valley. Uh, proponents, though, on the other side would say, listen, water's vital to, to California's infrastructure. It's vital to ag that feeds the nation. They also argue that the reason why we're in this predicament is because of government regulations, lack of surface storage being built. That caused the overdraft in groundwater, and that caused subsidence. Um, what do you think the voters are going to think?
0: Um... I don't know. It depends on whether the voters dig down that deep, I guess, is the question. But, you know, the idea that there are... Uh, special carve-outs and exemptions for people. that That's true, but they're the people who backed it. They're the people who gathered the signatures. They're the people who put up the money to do it, and that is the direct democracy system in California. I would also point out that one of the reasons people do that is because uh, initiatives are a lot harder to change than um, measures that are put on the ballot by the legislature. They can go back in and tinker their public hearings. You get pretty much what you want if you go raise $3 bucks and gather signatures and get it on the ballot.
1: Well, let me ask you, Laurel, uh, kind of going to that point, the Prop 3 opponents would argue that Unlike the June Water Bond, this Water Bond was not vetted by the legislature, but rather kind of crafted in secret. Um, do they have a point, or is this a distinction um, really without a difference? I mean, lobbying and that kind of stuff happens with legislation too. Sure. Backroom deals.
3: I would say it's a distinction with a small difference. You okay. know, there, are, there um, clearly there are you know lobbyists who work the Capitol and make backroom deals with the legislators. There's no surprise about that. Um, On the other hand, the process in the legislature is going to allow for those who are engaged to, you know, have the means to be represented in the state capitol to kind of get the updates along the way and push for little amendments, little tweaks and a few more dollars here and a few less dollars there. And so because there's a little bit more of a process, you know, there is more opportunity to have some input as opposed to something that gets on the ballot. Once it's qualified for the ballot, that's it. Can't be tinkered or changed at all.
1: And it comes, I know you've done some, some work on this in this area in terms of lobbying and, and whatnot in the state legislature. Do you see this as a distinction without a difference? Um, I think everybody says that when they're not at the table,
0: right? Everyone okay. complains until they get their moment in that. And when you see who these people are, if you're not one of them, you get unhappy. But again, there's there's very little formal opposition to these bonds, and right. we haven't seen campaigns on these bonds. And I would think if you had a concern about it, you would run a campaign in some way to point out. Right. That well, there's
3: no opposition with any money at this point. Well, I mean, Sierra Club is against it in some newspaper editorial boards, but there's no money right. campaign.
1: Well, up next, we're going to talk about one of those contentious propositions. That's Prop 6 uh, on the ballot up next uh, when this discussion of the Maddie Report continues. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. Perhaps no proposition on November ballot has generated more interest than Prop 6, the effort to repeal SB1, the 12-cent uh, gas tax, among other things. Uh, our guests are Laurel Rosenhall with Cal Matters and John Myers with the LA Times. So John, uh, although generally characterized as a repeal of the state's new fuel taxes and vehicle fees, there's an important aspect of this proposition that may be over, being overlooked, and that is it would require voter approval of any future fuel and uh, vehicle-related taxes and fees. What are the implications of
3: that?
0: Well, um, the, well, the implications simply are that the legislature won't be able to take action in the way it has in the past, and certainly won't be able to do what it did, uh, increasing gas taxes in 2017, which is what this is all about. It really, to me, Mark, it's the sweetener of this, right? I mean, it's the thing, you know, voters love to vote they in do. the state on ballot measures. And any idea Particularly on you, budget matters. Right. Well, budgets, taxes, things yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. Anytime you tell them you're going to get to have a say at that, that is what I think was was designed to try to kind of boost that turnout. The polling hasn't shown it so far. I think they're struggling to get their message out. But I think clearly that was aimed at trying to get a yes vote uh, that much more so.
1: And so that ballot box budgeting uh, issue again, Laurel... Um, so, what do you think? Uh, pretty important implications if that thing passes?
3: Yeah, and I think that um, you know cities and local governments are terrified about this mm. idea. And part of the problem is that you know this gas tax, known as SB One, was really focused on maintaining the roads—really unglamorous kinds of projects, filling potholes, doing kind of some basic maintenance. It's a basic you, government function, is correct. But if you are now tasked with going to the voters to ask for money then usually you're going to want to peddle something shiny and new. And how are you going to sell voters on the idea of, you know, we've just got to pave the roads? Well, let
1: me ask you this. A lot of people seem to acknowledge that this proposition, Prop 6, is really about energizing the Republican base, uh, getting them out to vote, and particularly in those contested congressional races mm-hmm. in California. Will it be enough to overcome the Trump factor in California?
3: That was the goal. I'm not sure it's going to pan out, honestly. Um, you know, the recent polling doesn't look encouraging, in competitive districts only... A little over a third of likely voters said they plan to vote yes on this. Now, um, you know, it, there's still another month to go, but the no camp—I'm sorry, the yes campaign doesn't have a huge amount of money, and I'm not sure in the end that will be a huge game changer. Think? I think
0: I think one of the most fascinating things out of this to me is that it's somewhat counterintuitive what you have to do as a voter here, because mm-hmm. if you don't like the gas tax— You have to vote yes. If you like the gas tax, you have to vote no. And that's not the normal messaging you get in a campaign. It's like, no gas tax, but yes, yes. on Prop (laughs) 6. So I think that is struggling there, too. And honestly, they just don't have the money. I mean, all of the the construction industry, the building industry, um, organized labor, the governor's backers, business groups are all in it for the gas tax to exist as it does um, the, the backers of the repeal have not had money after those congressional candidates put the money in. It's a really tough issue.
1: I think is there's a fracture there in the Republican Party between the business interests who, who want SB 1 to stay in place and the anti tax groups that want to get rid of it? I mean,
0: is that critical? Absolutely.
3: Uh, uh,
1: yeah, I, th- I think so. I mean, and,
0: and the business groups have backed a lot of Republican politics in the past. You wonder if there's an after effect to all this.
3: Well, of I think this is part of kind of a bigger evolution we're seeing with business groups in California. You know, they're they're no longer wedded to the Republican Party. You know, They've put a lot of money into fostering a cohort of moderate Democrats in the state legislature, right. and they have seen that the way to kind of get their policies across is to convince Democrats. So I don't see, I, I, I see this whole dynamic as kind of part of that bigger evolution well, let's for let's business. Flip it.
1: What about the Democratic Party? You've got a situation there where typically they don't like regressive uh, taxes mm-hmm. like a sales tax. Um, why haven't we heard more opposition from you know progressives and, and Democrats you know, saying, you know, we don't want the gas tax either.
3: I mean, some people are saying that. It's not that no one's saying it, but generally you have just an enormous broad range of constituencies that want this thing, including, you know, construction unions and many of the trades that this is going to be a ton of jobs. I,
0: I, I think job. I think that's right, and I think also, too, the backlog is real. There have been years uh, and years and years. Anybody and years. who drives knows that. Yeah, the backlog is real. Um, and there really is no other way to do it there's there simply hasn't been you know the 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 opposition to the gas taxes said well you could use money from this pot or that pot or redirect this but those are really complicated very hard to do I think the Democrats in the capital knew this was really the only thing to do and even if they didn't love it regressive tax is a really good point they held their nose and went for it and so we're gonna see in November where the voters are Uh,
1: let me ask you this governor Brown sitting on 15 million dollars in campaign uh, war chest we don't know if he's gonna run again for something let's assume he's, he's not is he gonna use some of that money to Not help? a chance.
0: Really? Not a chance. I, I don't think so. Now it's, it's a bold prediction, right? I'll see <laughs> if I'm wrong by the time voters uh, see this show. I don't think he does because I think that's his seed money to play in politics after he leaves in uh, the end of the year. I don't think Jerry Brown's going away. I think Jerry Brown wants to remain a force. I would also point out to people that on the 2020 ballot, we think we're going to see another fight over his parole changes, um, which he really cared about in 2016, wow. Prop 57. He could want to come back and campaign to that. They have plenty of money to try to protect the gas tax in this campaign. I don't think Jerry Brown. You're going to make it does. unanimous.
3: I was going to give a softer no. I was going to say basically. <laughs> I went out there. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to basically say only if he has to. I mean, if this if kind of like the polls start changing a lot or, you know, someone comes in with a huge amount of money for for the other side and circumstances really change. Maybe he throws in a, a couple million dollars. But right now, it, you know, there's no there's no reason well, he would.
1: We're, we're going to know shortly. All right. Well, up next, what are some of the other props that voters are going to be asked to decide? The remaining props in the November ballot in a moment. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Matty Institute. We're talking to Laurel Rosenhall with Cal Matters and John Myers of the LA Times. So, John, uh, Prop 5 uh, would amend the state constitution to give older and severely disabled homeowners a tax break. Um, Do you think it's going to have any effect on the split roll proposal that's likely to appear in the 2020 ballot?
0: Well, it's certainly in that universe of how Prop 13 and property taxes work, right? I mean, we've talked- You might want to define
1: split roll for our audience. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, well, first of all, you're right. It depends on how long people want to watch (laughs) this, right? right. I mean, you go back to 1978. We know how we got uh, Prop 13. We know the limitations it places on property tax payments. This particular measure, though, Mark, before we get to split roll, this particular measure simply extends uh, a process that works in some counties where uh, older Californians can effectively take their property tax rate with them when they move to a new house split roll which of course is the, the the big daddy of them all right is the one to, to change commercial property valuations uh, policy so that you would reevaluate them earlier you'd pay more in taxes to commercial properties versus uh, personal I don't know I don't know how much people will drill into that on this one I don't know if they'll understand this one the Realtors put this one on the ballot I I you know I just hate to say I don't know I don't know what do you I think, think
3: well The thing here is that the realtors have put a second measure on the 2020 ballot, which is very similar to this one that we have this November. And so basically, if this one fails, then in 2020, there will be two. Prop 13 related measures on the ballot kind of moving in different directions. So I think it impacts the um, calculus, the political calculus for the supporters of split roll in that they may wind up sort of facing their enemies very directly on the ballot um, in 2020 with these two conflicting things. But again, that's several chess moves away. I think the
0: better, the, 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 the fascinating question for me is what do the realtors want? You know, I think the realtors wanted, uh, quite frankly, a legislative deal in Sacramento in 2018, yeah. they didn't get it. They got this on the ballot. Mm-hmm. It's there where it is. Laurel's right. They've got one teed up for 2020. They could pull that back. There's still time mm-hmm. that they could pull that off the ballot. What do they want? What? Where are they involved in this mighty split roll property tax uh, war that we are shaping up for
1: for 2020? I think it's going to be super interesting. And that's to going to be a big one. You know, Prop 7 is another one we wanted to talk about, and that was the legislature would provide the legislature the ability to uh, provide permanent daylight savings time if the federal government allows. A timely top uh, topic or a waste of time? <laughs> I know, probably, probably too clever, but
3: you know. Um, Let me check my watch. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> the real answer on this one is that I think Brown said it in his signing message. It just allows a very circuitous path to actually making any changes. There would be numerous political and bureaucratic steps along a the way. A great signing
1: message, by the way. So
3: right, yes. <laughs> right. Ending Let there be with Fiat Lux. <laughs> yes, exactly. So. Um, so I think that this is one that is like a talker, but doesn't really have a big policy impact. Uh,
1: quickly, what do you think? It does nothing.
0: It really does. I mean, it always the sets government. the stage possibly for something in the future,
1: also known as it does nothing. Okay, so John, let's talk about, there's a bunch of other propositions on the ballot, but not as many as we've seen in the past. Does that mean some of the legislative reforms that we've seen in the past, uh, like redistricting, longer term limits in one house, two primary system, uh, top two primary, is it having an effect? Things are getting done in the legislature, we don't have to go to the propositions? I don't know if I could
0: be that rosy completely. I mean, I think that those changes in 2014 have had an impact. We've seen it in a couple of places, right? We saw it in 2016. There was a minimum wage measure that was going to be on the November ballot. Uh, The sides got together. The governor and the legislature uh, raised the minimum wage. The system worked there. It certainly worked in 2018 when a San Francisco real estate developer came forward with this sweeping privacy measure. He got it on the ballot. The legislature moved in what? a matter of days, mm-hmm. it was knocked off the ballot. It does work in some places, it doesn't work in others. And I'll give you two really quickly that are on this November ballot. That show that Prop Eight, Prop Eleven. Prop Eight is about kidney dialysis centers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would have loved to have had a deal on um, unionization of workers and wages and costs. They didn't get it. They went to the ballot. Prop Eleven is about ambulance employees and rest breaks. They also wanted something in the legislature. It didn't happen. They went to the ballot. Mm-hmm. The ballot is still the the court of last resort. What do you think, Laurel?
3: Well, I would just point out as a side note that you know there's one more in addition to three that were removed because of deals in yep. the legislature. Um, that three initiatives that would have otherwise been on this ballot. Um, There's one that was removed by the courts, you know, and that was the... Splitting the state. Exactly. So that was kind of, you know... Maybe next time. Yeah, (laughs) that doesn't speak to the efficacy of the legislature, but it does go to show you that there are a lot of different forces at play.
1: Okay, well, I want to thank Laura Rosenall with Cal Matters, John Myers with LA Times for joining us. The views and opinions expressed in the Maddie Report are those of the individuals participating in the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the California Channel or the Maddie Institute. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the points and opinions expressed in the Maddie Report, visit our website at maddieinstitute.org.
0: You're listening to the Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition, on KMJ.
1: Who follows Governor Jerry Brown as he completes his historic second eight-year stint as California governor will be decided this November. In addition, legislative seats up for grabs could alter the look of the California legislature as well as California's congressional delegation. We'll discuss the upcoming November races with Laurel Rosenhall of CalMatters and John Myers of the LA Times.
2: Additional funding for the Maddie Report made possible by a grant from The Wonderful Company, harvesting health and happiness around the world. From the California Channel at the State Capitol and the Maddie Institute, it's the Matty Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler.
1: Welcome. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. Well, we're going to have a new governor, a new state legislature, potentially a new Congress uh, after November elections. How consequential will, will all that be? We've got two important per- people to kind of guide us through this. John Myers, who's a Sacramento Bureau Chief for the LA Times, and Laura Rosenthal with Cal Matters. Welcome to the Matt Report. Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, John, uh, President Trump seems to be looming large over, over everything. Um, what effect is he going to have on Californian voters in November?
0: It really is the question, isn't it, trying to figure out the Trump effect, um, for better or for worse. The, the one number that I keep looking at is what is the president's job approval rating in California? Uh, when you look at one of the recent polls from the Public Policy Institute, it was about 37% of likely voters supported the job he's doing. I kind of consider that the base number, right? For a lot of things. Base number for John Cox who's running for governor, base number for Republican candidates in battleground districts, base number for the gas tax, which you would think there'd be some kind of linkage between mm-hmm. people who would be like-minded. Um, I don't know, but that's a low number. Uh, And if you see anybody else hovering near that number, it shows you they're not appealing to someone else. You've got to appeal to more than the Trump electorate in California, I think, in most cases. I'm gonna
1: try to argue the contrary. Non-factor or factor?
3: Oh, definitely a factor. I mean, I just, I I looked at the same poll and the number I took away was, um that you know half of likely voters think this race is more important than than any other you know mid uh, recent midterm election and so you've got a very energized especially on the democratic side very energized electorate who is fired up and believes this election is really really important
1: and he's approaching almost 60 percent negatives in terms of his overall performance president trump in california so that that's probably another issue well, well let me ask you this so we got the kavanaugh supreme court nomination we've got the me too movement Um, What impact are those things you think are going to have on uh, California congressional races?
3: You know, I think that this was already kind of shaping up to be a bit of a year of the woman even before the Kavanaugh nomination. There are um, a record number of women running for office this year. Something like one-third of the candidates across all the races in California, one-third of the candidates this November are... are are women. And while that's nowhere near the uh, numbers that women make up in society, it's more than we've seen on the ballot in 20 years. So, you know, it was already kind of shaping up in that direction. Um, I do think that the The Kavanaugh nomination process was extremely motivating for a lot for a lot of women, and so I think it's it's an example of kind of how your vote really plays out. You saw women kind of making an impact on Senator Jeff Flake face to face, you know, in terms of the decision to delay the vote on his um, on his nomination, and you saw the impact that you know one swing vote can have in the Senate. So those things really do show the um, you know you can't win if you don't play. And so they do kind of give, I think, an energizing feel for the importance of being involved. I will go
0: back to that poll if I can really quickly, Mark, for one more number. Prior to the whole uh, biggest part of the Kavanaugh fight, uh, that poll of Californians, 74% of likely voters That's said right. that the Supreme mm-hmm. Court decision was important to them this year. I bet that number could go even higher after what we saw with the Kavanaugh
1: situation. You've got to think there's an impact yeah, on the voters, voters are paying attention. Well, John, what about the economy? It seems doing pretty well, fairly robust, but it doesn't seem to be benefiting Republican candidates. Oh, why is that?
0: Uh, depends on who you talk to. I mean, the the question is, do you hear Republican candidates talking about the economy? I mean, look at those battleground house races. Um, you know, when you look at them, a lot of the conversation is about Trump. A lot of the conversation is about illegal immigration. Uh, it's not about jobs in the economy and the, the impact of the tax cuts. And so, um, we've all heard, you know, now for, uh, 25 years since the Bill Clinton campaign said it's the economy, stupid, except that it wasn't this time. It's immigration, stupid, or it's uh, Trump, you, or it's it's something well, else. seems to drown out
3: there, all there, the other messages. There's
0: a lot of noise,
1: a lot of noise. Yeah. What do you think?
3: Oh, I just think, you know, positive news is a little bit taking a back seat right now, you know. Mm-hmm. So, yes, things are humming along well in terms of the big picture of the economy. But um, there is a lot of drama coming out of Washington, and it's very hard for any political campaign, try as they might, to kind of ignore that. You
1: know, it's going to be interesting. Voter turnout is always an interesting issue. Um, and typically lat- Latinos don't vote in, in the numbers that probably suggest that they would. Young people, women. Mm-hmm. Are we going to see a big change in voter turnout, you think, uh, in this election?
3: Uh, you know, the turnout in the primary this year was much higher than last time around, so if that holds, then yes, we will see high turnout. Now, high turnout in California is a relative term because we generally don't have good turnout. But um, I do expect that it would be, you know, I don't know, between 50 and 60% this time.
0: It'll be a a key indicator of kind of what's going on here. I mean, it was better than the last election, but the last elections were, especially the the last 2014, Mm -hmm. was the worst in California history. So it really had very few places to go but up. But we have been waiting for a very long Mm -hmm. time to your part, Mark for um, uh, voters of color, uh, younger voters, to show up with the same enthusiasm they had there. Look at the 2016 race. They were enthused about uh, Bernie Sanders, for example. Bernie Sanders didn't win California, so you can't win unless you show up to vote. Registration is one thing. Casting the ballot is the thing.
1: Okay, well, up next we're going to talk about the state races, the governor, the state legislature, and those often overlooked constitutional offices. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Matty Institute. We're talking about this November's races with John Myers of the LA Times and Lowell Rosenhall with Cal Matters. So, John, um, what state issues do you think are going to be motivating voters as they're thinking about the next governor or the next legislator?
0: Well, it's interesting. You said state issues because I was going to say uh, all these things that are national issues until you said that because I do think it's a nationalized election in a lot of ways. Um, having said that, uh, you look at the polling. I think illegal immigration is still up there. I think it has been put on the table nationally. It's being talked about in the state. Um, I, I will be curious to see if people talk, at least on state races, about housing about homelessness, about transportation woes, and that's outside of the gas tax debate of Prop Mm -hmm. 6, because those are the things that impact life in California. Jobs and the economy are important, Mm -hmm. but housing is that thing that we've spent the last couple of years in Sacramento talking about. Do we hear about it on the campaign trail? What do
1: you think, Laurel?
3: I just think as far as for voters, you know, the cost of living in California is paramount. It's, you know, if you're um, doing well and you own a business, you're worried about sort of the tremendous cost of running a business and attracting and retaining your workers. If you Are a worker, you're worried about the basics, you know, paying the rent, paying the bills. So I think the cost of living is a big deal, and I think you know we've seen on the campaign trail, certainly John Cox, the Republican candidate for governor, is trying to make that a a, a marquee issue, and Gavin Newsom, in his own way, is doing the same thing, sort of with a different spin on it. But he's you know saying that yeah, our economic inequality, the cost of living here, it's really hard.
1: Well. The expectation is, frankly, that Gavin Newsom is is in the lead. Um, All the polls show that. Mm -hmm. So uh, what is going to be the fate of Governor Brown's big legacy projects, the high-speed rail, the Twin Tunnels project, if Newsom wins?
3: You know, I asked him that question last year at the State of the State, Jerry Brown's last State of the State, and he said he was going to be continuing the vision if he had the. Except good- one tunnel,
1: half the vision, one tunnel instead right. of two.
3: <laughs> so he said one. He said one tunnel instead of two, but you know, re- and he's flip flopped on high speed rail, mm-hmm. but his you know current kind of position is he would be continuing Brown's vision on both of those things. I think overall, you know, for Gavin Newsom. Um, if he becomes the governor, the challenge is going to be how much does he work on sort of continuing Brown's legacy versus how much does he work on differentiating himself and establishing his own legacy. And I think it's going to be a difficult line to walk and one that we will see him trying to kind of straddle over over the course of his his governorship.
0: If he's like any governor, uh, he has to come in and put his brand, his stamp Mm -hmm. on something. And maybe he wants to take a second look at those projects and and look at the fine points of the tunnel project or high-speed rail. He certainly talked about accountability on high-speed rail a little bit. Um, he can't say, I'm going to do something completely different because that would be something we would write about, right? Yeah. So he's going to say, you know, I believe in them, but I think he should take a look at them. and He probably will.
1: You're seeing the, the, the polling showing that actually the Republican John Cox is kind of narrowing uh, the gap with, with Gavin Newsom enough to win?
0: Uh, enough to win. Again, I go back to my Donald Trump job performance number, which was about 37% in a poll. There was a poll at one point in the governor's race, a little, uh, now a few weeks ago, 39% for John Cox. He was basically getting the Trump vote. Um, He doesn't have the money that Newsom has, he is playing in a state where Republicans are vastly outnumbered. They are fewer than one in four registered voters at this point. It's an uphill battle. Never say never in politics, you don't know what the very end is going to be, but it's hard to see a path forward unless there's an unforced
1: error from Newsom. Okay, so let me ask you about some of the down-ticket races, Laurel. Um, People don't really pay attention to. Any ones that you're looking at that these are kind of interesting?
3: (laughs) I mean, the state superintendent of schools is a, going to be a very fascinating, high-energy, big-money race. Um, it's sort of it's considered a nonpartisan race, but really, what you have here are two Democrats with very different visions about public education, and this is one of the. What's the, the issues. critical issue
1: there? What are they? Um, charter
3: schools and sort of employment conditions for teachers are, are enormous. And you know, Marshall Tuck is the candidate who's backed by the charter school and the world that kind of calls themselves the school reform world, education reform. Tony Thurmond is a, uh, an assemblyman um, who is backed by the teachers union and um, and the more sort of establishment of the education world. And education is one of the few issues that really divides Democrats. And so this. Race kind of exemplifies that larger schism within the Democratic Party?
0: Um, Lieutenant Governor, not because the Lieutenant Governor has anything to do, Governor but Light. because it's a, yeah, um, you know, get up in the morning, see if the Governor's okay, go back <laughs> to bed, right? But... Um, Because I think both of these candidates have their eyes set on some other office. Eleni Kunalakis and Ed Hernandez, both Democrats. I think they both think they could see themselves in a race beyond this. Kunalakis, of course, has not served in California, was an ambassador, her big coming out. And insurance commissioner, Steve Poisoner, Mm who... shed his Republican label to become a no-party preference candidate to come back which is, to the insurance Which is very interesting. as
1: he's setting a new but, strategy for Republicans? Still? Well,
0: against Ricardo Lara, a Democrat, well-known Democrat from the state mm-hmm. Senate, whether Poisoner is really a different guy uh, depends on who you talk to. I've talked to him. I didn't really see a big change other than some immigration issues. I think some people see this as a test of being a no-party preference candidate. Right. I think this is a Steve Poisoner, does he come back and rehabilitate his issue after a blistering gubernatorial race we're, in 2010? We're
1: really out of time, but I want to ask you a quick question John about the state legislature are we gonna see the Democrats retake a supermajority in the Senate
0: I think it's gonna be hard there's a, like one or two races we're watching uh, I think it's
1: a toss-up what do you think
3: I think they'll get it in the Assembly and I think this Senate is more the question
1: okay well up next we're going to talk about the US Senate race with Diane Feinstein is her approach of bipartisan uh, agreeing working with folks still work in the age of Trump that conversation in a moment this is the Maddie report welcome back I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute Senator, uh, U.S. Senator Dianne Feinstein was first elected U.S. Senator in California in 1992, 26 years ago. Uh, some would say, in very different times. Can this experienced bipartisan dealmaker fit in the age of Trump? We're talking to Laurel Rosenhall from CalMatters and John Myers of the LA Times. So John, uh, the, Senator Feinstein's challenger, State Senator Kevin DeLeon, has indicated that the, the, Senator Feinstein's really out of touch um, with today's California voters. She's just too moderate. What do you think?
0: Uh, I think it mirrors the fight in the democratic party it mirrors and, it, and frankly it mirrors the fight in politics now about about um ultra liberal ultra conservative who can be pragmatic is there a value is there a reward in being pragmatic um it's fascinating isn't it that diane feinstein came into office in the u.s senate in the aftermath of the anita hill clarence the, the thomas hearings right and here we are in the aftermath of the brett kavanaugh uh, christine blasey ford uh, hearings I, I, it's just. I think it really depends on who votes, it, yeah, and it really depends on whether people see Feinstein as a, you know, as getting somewhere, or do they want to make a broader statement? De Leon's had an uphill battle this whole time.
1: I think it still is an uphill battle. Close the gap, but it's still there's still a gap there.
3: Well, he got his party's endorsement, which was an enormous coup to, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. get the endorsement over the incumbent. Um, he has endorsements from some powerful labor groups. Um, but he doesn't yeah, have he their doesn't money. have the he doesn't money. Have their money. He doesn't yeah. have but, the money. But his
1: background's in labor too.
3: Yes, and even you know he has the support of Tom Steyer, who has billions of dollars, but doesn't seem to be spending them to <laughs> That's help it, him. has given
0: it to him, right?
3: So you know, I think that he has a very powerful, but perhaps in the end, symbolic run. Yeah, he's okay. a
0: guy, and I just have to say really quickly, Kevin De who has been in Sacramento for a very long time. Um, author of landmark legislation Absolutely. on climate change, mm-hmm. on immigration, um, but but is not known. And you've but got a effective to have, leader of the Senate, right? But you've got to have money when your name ID is not out there in this state, and the money just hasn't been.
3: As I recall, he lost in his very own district. I mean, right. he lost for this race in his own Los Angeles district.
1: Well, what do you, what do you think, uh, uh, Laurel, in terms of you know the Kavanaugh matter, the Me Too movement? Is that going to help or hurt Dianne Feinstein?
3: Well, I think it helps her among Democrats. It hurts her among Republicans, but Republicans don't like her anyway. You know, Republicans are going to probably mostly sit out this race anyway. They're going to skip it on their ballot. Um, I think for Democrats, it shows that, you know, having uh, having a senator with a lot of seniority puts you sort of in the the center of the action.
1: Let me ask you this, you know, John, uh, she's had some hawkish views on immigration, certainly in the 1990s, she's evolved from that, but Dan Walters, another person that's been on our program several times, has suggested this might cut into her lead among, you know, the anti-Trump, pro-immigrant Democrats. Do you agree? It it might, but
0: I think, think, you know, what Laurel said is is right, is that... um, there are going to be a, a, a large number of people, I suspect, who skip this race, who don't either don't know enough, don't see enough of a difference on the issues, Republicans, independents, mm-hmm. and so then it really comes down to the people who cast the vote on this, and um, and are they going to uh, punish her for for that? I. I I have a hard time uh, seeing that it actually comes to fruition. I do think with a different race, with a candidate who is well funded and a different message, Feinstein would be feeling the heat more than she is feeling it now. She seems to be, uh, we've said at the beginning here, someone who speaks to a politics that has not, uh, that has moved away in some ways about pragmatism and centrist. And um, this race could have been a lot different if uh, De Leon had had the. Momentum.
1: Well, here's a tough issue, Laura. I'm going to throw it you. Um, Senator Feinstein is going to be 85. Is, is 85 oldest member of the U.S. Senate. If reelected, she'll be 90 at the end of her next term. Appears to be in good health. Other senators have, have uh, been in the U.S. Senate into their 90s. Will this be an issue? Should it be an issue?
3: It may be an issue for some voters, but I don't think it'll be um, an issue for enough voters that it's the deciding factor.
1: Don't think so. You know, I'm, I'm thinking Alan Cranston. Uh, mm. For some reason, I'm thinking uh, there's similarities here. There, one of the things that was was being discussed when he was running was maybe he's too old, etc. Is that an issue in this race? Uh, people talked about it at the beginning.
0: Um, they talked about it quietly because they realized this was a very difficult thing to talk about, and you could there's a backlash mm-hmm. to talking well, about it. they used
1: it. code words like you know a new generation or a new leadership.
0: Yeah, I, I, you know I don't know. I mean I I, I think I think the polling has been pretty consistent that Feinstein has, um, she has not lost or gained a lot of ground. De Leon has gained a little bit of ground. I still think it's her, her race to lose. I don't think that's going to
1: come yeah, up. Yeah, she's, she's an icon in California politics, that's for sure. Well, up next, the, the congressional races in California, they could flip the House to the Democrats. Is that possible or even probable? That conversation in a moment. This is Mark Kepler with the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. For the Democrats to win back the House, they're going to need to win some seats in California currently held by Republicans. What are the chances that, that will happen, and what does it mean for California if it does happen? Uh, we're talking to John Myers of the LA Times and Laura Rosenhall with Cal Matters. So, John, um, how many uh, races in California, congressional races, are really competitive?
0: Uh, depending on how you define it, uh, somewhere between uh, six and eight. Um, And and really, you look at these Republican seats where Hillary Clinton won for president in 2016. So you've got them, uh, and they're really clustered around uh, Southern California with some in the Central Valley. Of course, you've got those in Orange County. You've got the Central Valley, David Valadeo, Jeff Denham. Um, That's where Democrats have put their money in this. Uh, They believe that their momentum is on their side. I don't think they think they can win all of them. But if they can win half of them or something like that, that is a major road toward taking back the House.
1: What do you think, Laurel? I agree six to eight is what we're really talking about here
3: yeah i mean some people might go as high as 10 sure. depending if you include like the mcclintock district and you know northern california, northern sierras or not but um i mean yeah
1: it, it seems like a good number and i've seen that number as well i just wanted to double check and so you you verified that laura let me ask you this um it seems like the congressional republican strategy in california is just kind of to forget trump and to paint uh, congressional democrats as just kind of tax happy you know spending uh, politicians and they've seized on Prop 6, which is the repeal of the gas tax, and hoping that's going to kind of energize their their base. But that's a state issue, not a federal issue. Um, Is that strategy, you think, going to succeed? Will it overcome the the Trump effect?
3: I think it may work in some districts. You know, it may motivate Republicans in some districts. I don't know that it kind of sweeps the state as this um, strong force, particularly because that campaign for Prop 6, the, the they're lagging in money and they're going up against some very well-funded interests that oppose the thing. Um, but f- fundamentally, like so many things in politics, this is gonna come down to turnout. You know, who who comes out to vote? That is gonna be the, that, that's gonna be the deciding factor.
1: And we talked, the very first question in this program was about what effect is Trump gonna have? And you say he's can have a really big effect.
0: Yeah, you know? and, it's, and it's so fascinating that when you look at some of these congressional races, in the cycles before these, and I'm thinking mainly uh, 2012, 2014, 2016, they were so nationalized. And those Republicans were running about Obamacare is horrible and all of these, you know, and now to to, to that point about the gas tax, we're trying to pivot it some way and get away. Don't look at the national show in a way. Let's talk about, you know, these horrible tax uh, uh, projects in California. It's a fascinating pivot in part because of Trump they can't uh, distance himself; these Republican incumbents completely, because that would get them in trouble in Washington. But they can't embrace the guy completely. It's a really tough place to. So, be. so,
1: so Trump, as a general rule, in these moderate swing districts, is going to be a bit of an anchor for Republican candidates.
0: Could be, could be, and I, and I don't know that I call the districts moderate, but I'd say the 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 electorates are really polarized here. And the question is, if you get turnout, if you get mm-hmm. high Democratic mm-hmm. turnout in some of these races, uh, that's a real, real problem. So, John, I'm
1: gonna. Ask you, to, ask you to kind of stick your neck out here a little bit and make an educated guess. How many seats do the Democrats win um, in, in California? How many do they take uh, away from the Republican, if uh, any?
0: It's, it's easier for me to come up with a number than to tell you district by district, right. in which case I would be in trouble. I, I think a reasonable number is uh, three or four. I feel like that the hopes are always higher than they're really going to be. Uh, I can't tell you which, which ones those are, although I would... Uh, I would say watch Southern California races more than the Valley races. The Valley races you know well. Right. Uh, you have not seen uh, things pay off there in a way, so I'd say maybe three or
1: four. What do you think, Laurel?
3: I was going to say about two or three. So <laughs> well, we're, we're close. Close. Yeah. Yeah. close. Okay. But similarly, Orange County, Northern San Diego County, that seems right. to be the real swingy yeah. area. Yeah.
1: Right. So let me ask you this, uh, Laurel: If the Democrats do win control of the House of Representatives, what does that mean for California?
3: I think it means that there is going to be a lot more pressure on the House on the issue of impeachment. I mean, I think you're gonna have a lot of Californians who are gonna be really pressuring their members of Congress on impeachment.
0: I think you're gonna have some of the most liberal members of uh, the California delegation uh, are gonna be in the spotlight and maybe not in the best way because the national narrative about whether an impeachment vote helps Democrats in 2020 is very different than California. Look at Barbara Lee in the Bay Area. Look at Maxine Waters in Los Angeles. These are people who are going to be very vocal probably about impeachment. And they may not do exactly what Nancy Pelosi, if she is the speaker, would want in terms of that positioning for 2020. I think Californians are going to be in the spotlight no matter what.
1: Well, is California going to be hurt in some ways because you know Kevin McCarthy? It looks like he's in line, possibly, to be uh, the next head of the House. Good relationship with Trump. All of a sudden, he's now in the minority. Um, does that hurt California?
0: Uh I don't know, I mean, how's the McCarthy relationship with Trump worked out for for California so far? I haven't really seen any demonstrable
3: impact. Other than, you know, the um, disaster aid that California has gotten very quickly from the Trump administration, um, that may or may not have something to do with Kevin McCarthy, I don't know. Um, I haven't really, you can't really say that McCarthy is sending home tons of pork for the entire state of California, so.
1: I I, I guess it remains to be seen. But
0: I will say a safe prediction, a Californian is poised to be the next Speaker exactly. of the House.
1: Well, well there you go. <laughs> That's a Nancy Pelosi. Kevin McCarthy. That's right. Thank you, John Mars, LA Times, and Laura Rosenhall with Cal Matters for joining us. Now it's your turn to exercise your democratic right and vote. This is Mark Kepler for the Matterport. Thanks for joining us. The views and opinions expressed in the matter Report are those of the individuals participating in the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the California Channel or the Maddie Institute. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the points and opinions expressed in the Maddie Report, visit our website at maddieinstitute.org. The Maddie
0: Report, Valley Views Edition, is a public affairs partnership between KMJ
2: Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Maddie Institute, providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This
0: is KMJ.